Greg Brunel live event. Uh, this is super exciting. We are super happy to have all of you here. We have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, my name is Mitch Severe, class of 2021. I'm a co-host along with Mary Ann Schwint, class of 2024. Um, so we'll have a general format of, um, we will uh, first have our, our um, uh, some uh, pre-arranged questions for the alumni speakers, as well as um, 10 minutes at the end um, uh, for a little Q&A from the audience. So be thinking about that. Um, I'm going to kick it over to Mary Ann just to introduce our awesome speakers and their topic, um, and we'll get the show on the road. So, hey, um, I'm coming from live from Langan Hall's basement. Um, exciting. Um, and... We are going to be talking about uh, parent-infant attachment, which is like the connection but that form between infants and parents. Um, and so we have two amazing alumni here with us. Woo! Um, so first is Dr. Stevie Shine, graduated in, from Grinnell in 2008, majoring in psychology and is a, currently a research assistant professor with the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Delaware. She is also director of training for the attachment and biobehavioral catch-up early intervention program. We also have Dr. Julie Hoy. Yes, graduated uh, from Grinnell in 2009, and she was she majored in biology and French. She is a licensed psychologist practicing in Minnesota, and her clinical practice supports infant and young children along with their family systems. She completed her PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Delaware in the Attachment and Biobehavioral Catch-Up Lab and her pre-doctoral internship at Tulane School of Medicine. So I'm super excited to have you guys here. <laughs> so <laughs> We're thrilled to be here. Thanks for having yeah. us. The biggest question is, how did you get here? It's a big question. Um, so for me, I graduated from Purdue, as you said. I worked in several different developmental psychology research labs at the University of Illinois after I graduated for several years. Um, and then I went and got my doctorate in developmental psychology at uh, University of Texas at Austin. And there I was researching how infant attractiveness affects adult emotional and caregiving responses. Um, spoiler alert, it does. Um, parents respond pretty differently to attractive babies than to unattractive babies. Um, and as I was doing that research, I felt like I was documenting some really important disparities, but I felt like I was totally without any ability to affect change in that. Um, so I started moving into more applied prevention and intervention research, which sort of takes me into my, my current role today. Um, when I say it out loud, it sounds like a really linear path. Mentally, it was not. <laughs> um, I was also really, you know, considering pursuing teaching, pursuing social work, thinking about public policy. Um, I also was thinking about pursuing opera performance as a career. Um, I was like a little all over the place, but with this sort of common thread of really caring about babies and caring about the relationships between babies and their caregivers and how those really set the stage for a lot of things that happen later in life. Um, so that was my my one sort of continuous linearity that I sort of, sort of followed. I um, I'm giggling because I 100% had that thought, Stevie, of like, so you had this planned all along, like this is what you were going to do. <laughs> so I um, I did not know that I was going to be a psychologist when I was a baby undergrad. I took one psychology class with Ann Ellis, and it was amazing. But I just I don't know, I was like hard sciences only and then sprinkling some French. Um, so I was a biology major at um, at Grinnell and then I also worked at the preschool lab school and that was hugely important to me. Like that was one of my favorite experiences from Grinnell. And from that, I got really interested in young children and afterwards started working with um, up here in the Twin Cities with kids on the autism spectrum disorder and really um, started thinking about, similar to Stevie, just different disparities that are present for kids and how, how life is unfair and how it gets in the way of treatment and success and all sorts of different things. Um, so I was up here and helping like individual kids and thought, well, holy cow, I, I wanna know how we help, help systems and create broader change for kids and understand this a little bit better. Um, so I started working um, 
around parenting interventions and how we support parents and how parent can be parenting and parents can be a buffering relationship for kids. And that led me to do grad school out at the University of Delaware with attachment and biobehavioral catch up. Um, and within that lab, I got the really cool opportunity to kind of combine the psychological theory and the importance of parenting and early attachment relationships and kind of the the warm fuzzy stuff that I was interested in with some of the background that I had in biology. So thinking through how early risk impacts biological systems, affects health outcomes, all that sort of stuff, um, and how this psychosocial perspective of, of parenting is um, interplays with those different things. So what exactly is parent-infant attachment and why is it so important? Good question. Um, so one thing we know is humans are born totally dependent on their caregivers, right? For everything, for food, for locomotion, for temperature regulation even. A lot of animals are born like pretty full formed, but humans aren't. We are born needing so much help and support from someone, usually our caregiver. And so we, and, and that lasts for a long time. We need a caregiver to help us with our bodies and our emotions for many years. Um, so when we're talking about parent-infant attachment, we're really talking about this relationship that forms between an infant and their primary caregiver. Um, and when we're thinking about attachment, you know, we often think about more and less healthy versions of that, right? So children are, are born sort of wanting to attach to someone, wanting to have that special relationship where they feel supported. Um, and sort of the levels at which that varies are sort of what's happening within that relationship. So the goal is to have a secure attachment where kids are able to use their parents as a secure base, where they're able to use their parents as a safe harbor from which they can go out in the world and explore and try new things and know that it's okay to fail. And if something bad happens, they can come back to their parent and they can get that comfort and that reassurance. And that is such a key part of this, right? The ability to go out and be independent and try new things in the world and also have that safe place to come back to where you feel emotionally supported and you feel understood and you feel seen. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, like, what what do you already know about this? Like, how how are you able to like measure parent infant attachment? And, um, yeah, what what type of research has already been done? Yeah, so there's <laughs> there's tons of research out there on parent infant attachment. Um, so some of the most like traditional attachment researchers that are presented in a lot of psych undergrad classes are um, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. So they started researching, gosh, the 1950s mm -hmm. about. Um, and what is really wonderful is that uh, for the 1950s, they were doing some pretty global levels of research. So attachment was originally conceptualized and synthesized based off of research not only done with like the typical white family in the Americas, um, but also from observing parents and their babies in Africa and in a number of developing countries as well. So the research base around attachment and its importance is, is pretty strong at this point, which is wonderful. The gold standard way for measuring attachment relationships is the strain situation. So um, an infant and their caregiver are brought into a room where a stranger is, and it's meant to stimulate like you're at a you're in a waiting room at a doctor's office. And what we're looking for, um, we do a series of separations and reunions. So the parent will leave and the baby's alone with the stranger and then the parent comes back and then um, the stranger leaves and then the parent leaves and the baby's alone with a lot of people watching <laughs> to make sure they are safe. Um, and then the parent comes back and we look at the reunification behavior and the cues that the child is showing, um, wanting contact with the caregiver, approaching the caregiver, all of these different things. And when we conceptualize or, or um, categorize attachment relationships, we think of a handful of different categories, but really two constructs. One is organization and the other is security. So organization is this child has a, a pattern that they use or rely on. Like they have an organized understanding of how to use their, their caregiver. So organized might mean I miss you. I'm sobbing. <laughs> like, come help me. Pick me up, mom. Yeah. And then mom swoops in and is like, 
you're crying, you need me, here I am. Um, so they have a set of cues that they can display to use their caregiver. And this is optimal, what Julie's describing, is that kids can give these really clear signals of, hey, I'm upset, I need you, here's what I need from you. And the parents are able to respond in that really quick, easy way of, oh, I see what you need, you need me, great, I'm here, I can comfort you, I'll pick you up, sure. Mm -hmm. And super optimal is that that works and the kid calms down, mm -hmm. right? The kid has gotten what they need from that interaction. Um, what's a little bit trickier, so another organized pattern um, would be a resistant baby. So baby might, might cry and say, help, I need you, what's going on? And mom says, okay, I think you need me, I'm going to pick you up, but it's not quite sure if baby's going to get what they need out of mom, and so they keep fussing. Right, and so they keep crying, and they're they're coming. Oh no, wait, I'm not quite right. What's happening? They're sort of um, trying to show the parent how mad they are about the parent leaving, while simultaneously being really sad that they left. And so they show these really conflicting behaviors, but it's really adaptive in a way because they keep fussing and showing mom, like I'm not going to let you go until I get what I need from you. Mm -hmm. Babies are powerful, man. And what's interesting and what a lot of Stevie and I spend our day-to-day -day, like clinical lives thinking about is how um, those cues for parents can be hard to stand sometimes. So parents in response to resistant babies often feel um, fussy back, right? Or like, oh gosh, well, you, you don't need me because I'm not working calming you down. And so are more likely to kind of discontinue their, their attempt at nurturing their baby. They sort of blame the baby for their own emotions, right? Like, this isn't a big deal. You shouldn't have done that thing that made you upset in the first place. Or like, I'm, I'm here. It's not a, you know, I came right back. The sort of feeling of your feeling is out of proportion. Your feeling is too big or too much. And that sort of starts this back and forth between the parent and the child of them sort of fussing at each other. And that makes it really difficult for them both to get what they need out of this interaction. So we have our, our secure optimal of like, I need you and I got what I need. Our um, secure, sorry, our organized insecure, which is a little bit less optimal. That's really, um, I need you. I don't know if I got what I need. I'm still fussy. Um, then we have secure avoidant, or sorry, insecure, but organized and avoidant. So what that means is they have a, a pattern they can rely on, um, but that pattern is really um, not optimal. So what avoidant babies tend to show is, ooh, I know I can stick closer with my caregiver if I actually don't show that I'm distressed. So my caregiver is a little bit more comfortable with me when I'm happy and playing. So what we see from avoidant babies is when they're upset, they're more likely to not cue that they're in distress. Right, which again, if you are a sane adult and a baby is like, hey, you're not likely to be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? What's going on? Like, it, it, you're not getting a cue that your kid needs nurturing. So it's really hard to respond to. Look fine, even though they are internally very distressed. Mm -hmm. They're using the strategy of saying, like, I don't need you to sort of try to self soothe, but that's not something the babies can actually do. So when we think about what goes awry with attachment, one of the biggest pieces that um, affects the attachment relationship is frightening behavior from, from parents, right? And frightening behavior can come from a lot of different places with parents. So it can come certainly from their own distress tolerance, their you know parents' anger, parents having a hard day. Um, it can also come from like postpartum depression and just being really flat and not giving the response that that babies are innately wired to expect from their caregiver. And what we see then is that attachment relationships are more likely to be disorganized. And what that means is that kids don't have an organized model for how to approach their attachment figure. And we send, tend to see really conflicting cues. So the baby knows, um, has this conflicting experience of, oh my God, I need you. And oh my God, I'm kind of scared of you. So sometimes um, some disorganized, some examples of disorganized behavior would be a baby saying, um, ah, pick me up while backing away from their caregiver at the same time. Mm -hmm. and what we know is that that uh, disorganized attachment is associated with higher levels of psychopathology later in life, um, dysregulated stress systems, just a whole host of issues, not only in infancy, but throughout the lifespan as well. 
So when we consider, oh, what types of attachment relationships are we hoping to support through intervention? It's really shifting kids from this disorganized attachment into a more organized form. And sort of jumping off of that, what we're hoping to build ideally is the secure attachment, right? Where the baby knows how to signal to the parent and get what they need. So in this way, babies can build what we call like an internal working model of themselves and of the relationship. So they build this expectation that when I need comfort, when I need help, I can get it. I can feel safe and seen and secure. I am effective in eliciting a response from my parent and getting my needs met. And because of that, I am worthwhile. And so through that, babies learn that it's acceptable to express their emotions in an appropriate way and that emotional communication with their caregiver is an important thing. Um, and there have been some amazing studies that look at like how babies do build this internal expectation. There's one amazing one where they showed babies like a video of um, uh, a, a baby crying and the mom like not responding. And the babies who had secure attachments with their parents who had built this internal expectation of like moms are supposed to pick up their babies when they cry. They watch this video of a mom not picking up her baby and they're like, what the heck is going on? This is wrong. Someone help that baby. They their own attachment experiences influence their mental expectations of what a relationship should look like. And I think that's really key because it carries throughout, you know, many years of our lives. Like as kids get older, they know I'm still a good kid. My parent still loves me, even if I make a mistake, right? It's safe to rely on people. These kids also learn how to tolerate disappointment without totally collapsing. They learn that like my feelings are acceptable and when I'm having a big feeling, that's okay and I can get through it, right? The letdown doesn't have to lead to meltdown and it doesn't have to lead to shutdown. And so we think about this like in teenage relationships with parents too, you get this feeling of like something bad or scary or weird happened. Oh. I should talk to my parent about this as opposed to, ooh, something bad, weird, scary happened. My parent can never know and I need to hide this from them, right? So we get this open communication as well as a better ability for kids to cope with things like novelty and failure. And those are so key in thinking about long-term outcomes um, of kids, even as they're moving into teenager, teenagerhood and adulthood. Emerging adulthood and adulthood. I think the other piece that came up for me when you were talking, Stevie, is that an internal working models of attachment are almost like cookie cutters mm -hmm. that, you know, they're formed in this infant parent attachment when we're tiny babies. And then an individual carry that individual baby carries it throughout their lives and uses that cookie cutter as a mold for how to understand the needs and um, strength and health of other relationships. So when kids are making friends, when they're picking about a partner, and when they are, when they perhaps become parents and parent their own children, um, that experience, when they were a tiny baby, impacts the types of partners they may choose, the types of friends they may make when they're older, um, romantic partners, which impacts health in a lot of different ways, um, and how they parent their kids. So what's interesting and what we um, might talk about in a little bit is also how parenting is carried on through generations and how stress is carried on through generations. So it gets in under our skin, we pass it on epigenetically, um, and there's some different pieces of parenting practices that get passed on epigenetically and through altering parenting practices, even in early infancy, we can alter some of those epigenetic patterns as well. And that's so important too. like these cookie cutters aren't set in stone. There's a lot that we can do to sort of change that mold and shift that mold over time. And part of that is from changing sort of the, the caregiver child dynamic and relationship. Part of that could be from changing the external systems, which then sort of open up the caregiver's ability to change that relationship. Um, but also changing situations sometimes. Um, I think, yes, we'll, we'll continue on this theme. That's great. Um, it's really, it's like really interesting to see this spectrum going on, especially in like how, like how children like and parents interact with each other. And I think building on that, um, 
Can you all talk a little bit more about your research and how that does inform when things do get challenging or how like can parents be better supported? Um, I mean, the answer to can parents be better supported is 100 million percent yes. <laughs> we as a society can do a lot more to help nurture this really important key relationship between parents or caregivers and their infants. Um, our current work uh, has dovetailed quite a bit, um, partly because of a chance encounter somewhat facilitated by Professor Ann Ellis of Grinnell, um, where Julie and I ran into each other at a conference several years ago um, because of a happy hour that, that Dr. Ellis put together um, and realized we were both really interested in the same types of research. And Julie was already doing a lot of that research and I hopped on the bandwagon. Um, and so now a lot of what we do is very overlapping. Um, so we both work at least partially for Dr. Mary Dozier's attachment and biobehavioral catch-up program, which is a strongly evidence-based early prevention and intervention program, which has super amazing longitudinal outcomes for kids. Um, it's sort of an in-the-moment parent coaching program that happens within a home visiting setting. So parent coaches go into people's homes and sort of coach them on these minute-by-minute -minute interactions that they're having with their children. And this really primarily serves caregivers of infants and toddlers who've experienced some sort of early adversity. So again, we're sort of looking at these kids who have some sort of early trauma or things that are gonna make it more difficult for them to securely attach to their parents. So oftentimes this is involvement with child protective services or uh, foster and adoptive parents, caregivers who have substance abuse disorders, caregivers who have mental health struggles, stuff like that. Um, so the program is currently implementing in, I think, 24 states and nine non-US countries um, through different sorts of community organizations now that we have a really strong research base that was developed in the lab. Um, so Julie did a lot of the research uh, in the lab and now also does a lot of the clinical work that, that supports all of that. You wanna talk more about your, your studies? Uh, sure. <laughs> So I, um, I'm going to be a big bio nerd and talk about some of our cortisol work, but I do want to say that, um, and we'll return to this, like put a little pin to remind us to come back to this later. But when we talk about um, our intervention work, it, it is on the individual level, right? So we're going in with specific families and being like, here's how we are going to parent today. And it's great. In that work, holy cow, that puts a lot of stress on an individual parent, right? And I have certainly worked with moms where I'm like, I don't know, right? Like this seems unfair and not ethical to put the stress of this on you. Like that is not what it's about. And even in our broader research and our broader work, I think Stevie and I are both really passionate around like, this is not just a, um, a problem for families involved in CPS, right? Like this is a systemic problem. This is a societal problem that we need to bring on additional supports for these families because holy cow, it cannot be on their backs to do it alone. I think this, this um, flavor or fear that I have of like parents feeling so much guilt and so much responsibility for their children's health and well-being and attachment relationships is certainly heightened during this pandemic where it's like, yeah, if you're going to tell a parent on top of working, on top of doing video calls, on top of worrying about rent, on top of all this other stuff to be there for your child 100% every single second of every single day, impossible, can't be done. So um, to think through like things that need to be done at the societal level to ease some of the stressors and ease some of the barriers that parents experience to providing adequate care. And speaking of barriers, you know, we know that even the reason that a lot of parents get involved with our program and, and sort of with the child protective service system have some structural racism that are inherent in them. The child protective service system uh, has, you know, found that despite similar rates of substance abuse between black and white pregnant women, black women are 10 times more likely to be reported to child welfare authority for substance use during pregnancy. Huge disparity. Um, doctors are more likely to report injuries on black kids as suspected child abuse as compared to identical injuries on white kids. Uh, Caseworkers are quicker to perceive black kids as being at risk and in need of removal from their homes. So we know that there's tons of layers that are 
really structural and really societal big policy issues that are also affecting even how parents get referred to the types of programs that we're working on. So I'm going to segue <laughs> into talking about some of the research that I think, um, I don't know, it, it, I find it really inspiring to me. And I think it, it does emphasize like a strengths based and a, and a bit of a feeling of empowerment for parents. So um, who, who here that I see has heard about cortisol? Uh, so a lot of lay people are like, I'm aware of cortisol, right? It, it, that thing that happens in my body uh, when things are stressful. So we think of cortisol as uh, a hormone that gets released from a part of your brain that interacts with a bunch of different systems in your body. And most people are aware of it as, um, yeah, when something's stressful, when that tiger is chasing me out in the wild, or when I am in front of my class giving a lecture or a presentation, holy cow. Or a human <laughs> podcast. Is your carnival? Is it going up, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, your, your body releases cortisol and it synthesizes all of these glucocorticoids in your body so that you have energy. That energy can be used to fight, it can be used to help you run away, it can do all sorts of stuff. But cortisol has two functions. So not only does it inform our stress response to immediate stressors, it also has a diurnal function. So what that means is it, you can think of it like your body's cup of coffee, right? So cortisol, when you wake up in the morning, for most humans, uh, it's high, right? It's giving our body a jolt of energy. And then throughout the day, it kind of drops off. I never know if I'm mirrored. Does this look like it's dropping off and then here it's night? Uh, is that better? <laughs> so at the end of the day, whatever way it is, it's low. Um, and that lets you go to sleep. So what we see is that for babies who experience early adversity, which certainly encapsulates things like physical abuse, but also encapsulates things like um, neighborhood violence, poverty, things that um, impede a mom's ability to be present with her, a parent's ability to be present with their child. Um, and that child's ability to feel safe and secure in their relationship and in their experience as a human, not just within the relationship, but within their setting. What we see is that the cortisol response system, that stress response system, is activated too much, right? And so when a cortisol system gets activated, what happens is in response to the immediate stressors, their cortisol spikes up higher and stays up high longer, right? So I don't know if you've ever seen the toddler that like loses it over one little thing. And then holy cow, every other thing that happens still hurts. It's <laughs> Marianne's like, I've seen it, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's that that happens. The other piece that we see happens is that the diurnal pattern gets really wonky. So with kids who experience these, these myriad of adverse early experiences, their cortisol throughout the day is relatively flat. Right, so it's one level in in the morning where it's not high enough to really give them that jolt to get up and get going and throughout the entire day. It doesn't drop off so that they can go to sleep at night. So here's the empowering part that I get excited about because structural things like neighborhood violence are really hard to change. Right and unemployment and maternal mental health and the opiate crisis. Those are really, really hard to change. So our intervention attachment and biobehavioral catch up is 10 sessions. So that's 10 hours with with the family, right? When we are with them in those 10 hours, we are pointing out every possible thing we can, every parental response to a child's cue that this attachment body of research has shown is associated with secure attachments. So that's things like baby cries and mom says, oh, what's going on? And we're like, oh. Oh my God, baby cried and you said, what's going on? That's beautiful nurturance. That lets him know you're there for him. That is so cool, right? Lots of positive reinforcement. It's very, it's an attachment intervention with a very behavioral method of delivery. So we are it's like super strength based. Yeah. So after 10 sessions in infancy, what we see, so if um, low risk, so if low risk kids have a steep cortisol slope throughout the day, and high-risk kids have a flat slope. What we see after the intervention is that slope of the high-risk kid is closer to matching the low-risk kids than, than the high-risk kids who received a control intervention. What's fascinating, so that we measured that about three months after the intervention when it was delivered in infancy. We followed those kids from infancy up, the lab's now bringing them in for 12 to 14-year-old checkups. 
right? We've followed them that entire time persisting into, so the last round of data that we published was from their nine to 11 year old visits. That difference in cortisol slope associated with sensitivity informed by the intervention persists from 10 hours of work. Wow, mind blown. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> mind blown. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Resilience factor, right? Having a super sensitive parent blunts the trauma and early adversity effects. Having a super sensitive parent who says, I see you, I hear you, there's something going on for you. I believe that. And I'm going to be here to help you get through it. That helps kids physically emotionally and behaviorally to be more resilient in the face of adversity. Yeah. This is your big picture take home. I was wondering about like, what is good enough parenting and how do we learn to become better parents, right? Like that's a question that I feel like most people, most parents have, right? I think one really big thing, and Julie has alluded to this already, is taking care of our own mental health and again, that's something with a lot of structural barriers, especially right now, but it is really hard to be present and be sensitive if you are not feeling good yourself, right? If you are getting agitated and dysregulated by your child's distress, an escalated parent cannot de-escalate an escalated child. So taking care of our own mental health is really, really important. I think this idea of, of good enough parenting is so, such a wonderful thing. And again, sort of bring, bring it back to this idea that kids are really resilient. You know, we, if we can take these opportunities to connect throughout the day consistently in these little tiny ways, it's cumulative. That stuff builds up. So it doesn't have to be, you know, these big moments where you're like, I am here for you. It can be like your kid's like, I tripped. Uh, and you're like, oh, yeah, that looked like it really hurt. Do you want a hug? Like those little moments really build up. Um, John and Julie Gottman's research has been with like romantic relationships between adult marital partners. And they found that for every, you need five positive interactions in the relationship for every negative one to have a healthy relationship. They use the um, metaphor of like, you're putting deposits in your bank account, right? We know we're gonna have crappy days. We know we're gonna have to make withdrawals. We know there are gonna be days where you just kind of lose it. That happens, but if you can build that really strong foundation, those little tiny withdrawals don't make as big of a difference, right? If kids know my parent sees me, my parent knows me, I'm safe with them, then the little stuff doesn't matter as much. And when we're talking about like, oh, what, what types of behaviors are we thinking about? The types of behaviors that we know are really, really good for, for babies, for young babies. Um, and throughout most of childhood, so things get more complicated, the more kids develop, turns out. Um, but the, the specific behaviors that we think about are nurturance, so responding when our kid is upset, right? Um, following the kid's lead, which is supporting exploration. So if, if your kid is doing a puzzle, you're like, cool puzzle. That's awesome. I like how you put that piece there, right? Instead of being like, it goes there. Do you see this? Do you, what's the scientific name for this animal that you're building and getting really intense, right? And leading the game. Um, the research that we have, so historically research has shown that within families where there's not a stressful experience, kids need those types of interactions 30% of the time. And some of the research from our, our lab family <laughs> is showing that for kids who have experienced early life stress, they need those interactions 50% of the time. So still not the majority of the time, right? So I'm saying that because it's really, really hard to be that perfect person 100% of the time. The other thing that we care about when we're considering what types of parenting do we want to see or, or not want to see, right? It's frightening behavior. So the yelling, the terrifying, the hitting, the discipline, the like harsh stuff that can come the out. Threats. Mm -hmm. So it's stuff that um, I think both Stevie and I are like very sensitive and, and attuned to and we're like, oh God, right? And now, so one of the biggest shifts in my life was going from a researcher of parent and infant um, attachment and attachment relationships to having a tiny infant and being like, oh god i'm losing my stuff right 
So a hundred percent when my child like comes over and beans me in the face or whatever, I have a response to that, right? And I'm like, oh, we do not hit, get out of here, <laughs> right? Like, <sighs> and I have to take my moment and I have to cool. Like it's not always possible to avoid that frightening or avoid the times where you just can't with it, right? Um, but research also tells us that the most important part is not necessarily that rupture, it's the repair that comes, right? So when I lose my crap, I can go take five seconds to or five minutes or five hours to take some deep breath, cool down, whatever, so I can come back to my baby and be like, you know what, that was really hard. I am so sad. You were so upset and you hit mama. That was really tough for both of us. I love you so much. What can we play? And what I hear here is a couple of things. And one is you're normalizing your own negative feelings and being open about your own emotional response in that moment. And also keeping this, letting this child know she's still safe, right? I had a moment. It wasn't great. <laughs> I'd love to redo, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. You know, I'm still here for you. I still support you. You're not a bad kid for, you know, accidentally whacking me in the face or whatever. You had a moment. And then I had a moment <laughs> and that's okay. You know, we can talk about that. We can come together on that. And I think that's one of the things, you know, that parents often have these really intense, like freeze moments too, of like, I yelled at my kid. I feel guilty about this. Have I ruined them forever? And of course the answer is no. <laughs> and there's so many chances to explain and reframe and redo, right? And, and to reframe the child's behavior in that moment too of, you know, this is a kid who was really overwhelmed and sort of didn't know how to handle their own big feelings. This idea of when kids are having these big feelings, they sort of lash out sometimes and that can feel really crappy as a parent, but sort of reframing it as this is a moment where this child is seeking connection. This child is seeking relationship and they are not feeling heard, right? So as they continue to feel like, you don't get what I'm mad about, it gets louder and louder and more intense because they really want you to know that you don't get it yet. And so being able to be there and say, you know, okay, I'm listening. You know, your emotions don't overwhelm me. I can hold those emotions with you. I can sit with you through those. I can also hold my own boundaries about not wanting to get accidentally smacked by my toddler. You know, this is a both and situation. Um, and I think it's so hard in those moments when kids are having the really big feelings not to dismiss it or minimize it or jump to explain or blame or problem solve. Just sort of being there and acknowledging this is a really hard moment for you. I see that you're really frustrated. You know, you can hold that boundary and hold their feelings about it simultaneously. Both things are true. You are mad and I can't let you hit me. I see how frustrated you are. I see how challenging this is in this moment. It's hard to be in that mental space 112% of the time though. <laughs> um, and to try and kind of get the last um, little section before we go into questions. Um, so as, as a whole, how can we really um, society become better about understanding uh, parent-infant attachment. We need some work. We need some work on that. One big thing that pops out to me is there's a huge lack of support from the very beginning, societally. We are the only OECD country without national statutory paid maternity, paternity or parental leave. And in the United States, only 60% of folks are eligible for unpaid leave. This is a huge problem <laughs> um, that makes it really hard. This is a structural barrier, right? If you have to go back to work right away, it is really hard to have your own system calmed enough to be able to calm a baby. We often see, you know, we often see this crop up too in, in families and communities with really high levels of poverty and really high levels of external stressors and have found that if you give people leave, if you give people money, if you give them consistent and flexible work schedules, reducing family stress is a giant predictor of parents' abilities to be responsive to their young kids. So we can do things to make it easier on individuals. We can do things as a, at a societal level. We can provide better access to healthcare. We can provide better access to mental healthcare. Um, 
all of this is super, super important in being able to, to give parents the ability, the chance to be able to be sensitive and responsive to their babies. I think there's also a lot of, of consideration and work that needs to be done among systems where babies are separated from their parents, right? And when I say that, um, that means immigration. <laughs> In addition to child welfare systems, right? Where um, babies are, as Stevie pointed out, are separated from their parents for uh, varying severities of, of infractions and all the sorts of stuff. So. In various states and various systems, um, a great example, as Stevie pointed out, is the opioid crisis and babies who are born with some type of opioid in their system. Now, certain states have developed um, substance use treatment centers where babies actually go with their parents to the treatment center and where there's more programming and ABC is, is an intervention in a lot of those um, in a lot of those centers. Um, to support parents in developing that attachment relationship and strengthening that attachment relationship as they are going through treatment for other reasons as well. So there's a piece within child welfare where I think it's helpful to think what is in the best interest in um, what is in the best interest for for the child, right? And for the um, relationship. And for the relationship, because separation is traumatic. Even if it is, so some people will say, oh my gosh, I she went home with me straight from the hospital. She never knew bio mom, so it wasn't a trauma. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that baby developed for nine months <laughs> with that heartbeat, with that voice, with that temperature regulation. Um, with those tastes, with those smells. Coming into the world already is like, what is light for a baby? <laughs> you know, and now like the few cues that they had of security and what they know are different and taken away. So, um, Separation in itself, even when it is to a like better quote unquote environment um, is still really difficult for kids to cope with. So what is um, horrendous for me to consider is the fact that we as a state, as a country um, have been separating kids from their parents at the border and I can't. <laughs> it's a lot of um, fear and concern and and work around how are we going to fix all of the harm that our country has um, enacted against these families and against these kids and especially during this this early period of, of early childhood and infancy it's such a formative time for developing that trusting relationship and developing that internal sense of who am i you know can i make changes in the world? Can I affect the world around me? Can I get help when I need it? And sometimes the answer is a resounding no. And sometimes that is something that we as a society have done. And I think we all need to take a long, hard look at, at, the, at the traumas that we are inflicting as a society, as, as well as the ones that we are trying to mitigate. Um, but there are, there are some really big, big policy issues that can be changed to look at these things. Um, I also want to just not to be completely gloom and doom, um, say when we put our dollars toward prevention over intervening later in comparison to overbeating later, intervening later, we see a huge return on investment, right? If we invest in high quality early childhood programs that support parents and also give families access to things like early head start and, and preschool and daycare, there is a financial benefit and an emotional benefit. So I don't know that our politicians want to listen to that part as much. There's a financial benefit to investing early. And I think that that, that is something that I wish we as a society were doing more about as well. Um, these things aren't set in stone. Trauma hurts and changes kids' biology and changes their relationships, but we know we can help. We know we can do something about it. And we know that I think societally, we all want the same things for our kids, right? We all want kids to be happy and healthy and safe and successful. I don't know anyone that would say they don't want that for either their own kids or the, you know, the kids that they know or just the, the children of the world, right? We all want that, but we have to do something to be able to support that. 
Yeah, for sure. And trying to take the pin out. Remember when you said that, Julie? <laughs> um, I was just wondering if you would like to uh, kind of talk more about the individual with the society kind of coinciding together. Is is that is that what we, where you were going to towards when you were talking? I can't remember. <laughs> it's okay. But I think it's this, I think Marianne, what you're bringing up is this great idea of like how we think about the parallel process of like the society has to support caregivers so that they can support kids. There are things that we can do on an individual level, a hundred percent as parents of kids who've experienced trauma or just as parents of kids, you know, who haven't, there are tons of things we can do. You know, we can be really empathetic. Um, I think that's a really, that's a really big part of what we're talking about, but also it is much harder to do that within a structural system that is not supporting parents. I think that parallel process, though, the way that kids need to be held and supported by their by their parents is often how families and families who are struggling need to be supported by their system. And the way that we are hoping for parents to be nurturing and supportive and um, delighting and encouraging and accepting of their babies is what would be beautiful for systems to um, to feel <laughs> towards the families they are in charge of supporting. Um, I also want to make a plug. So I think that uh, we've talked a few times on like maternal mental health and parental mental health in general, and just how that's one of the um, things that can really make it hard to parent day to day, you know, um, and especially for for new families, for first time moms who are going through this stuff. So we know, so the intergenerational transmission of, of trauma is real. So epigenetically, it gets on. It is like, it gets under our skin. We carry it forward with how our genes are turned on and turned off. Those epigenetic markers are heritable. heritable. So they get passed on to our babies. And we know that parenting practices are transmitted as well. So the way that parents respond to their infants innately is the way that they were parented when they were babies. And there's beautiful rat research around this. There's beautiful human research around it. It's a rhesus monkey research. This is not just just humans. Super wide. So really universal need. Super, super universal need. and that those that those patterns are malleable right so if we do something to make to make this extra work right so we need to respond in a way that isn't necessarily innate that requires some additional effort um if we do that that also is heritable right that's that also gets passed on to our future generations um it's a big ask it's a huge ask it's really hard and independently it's near impossible, right? Like think of like yourself being like, oh, I shouldn't watch TV tonight. That failed, right? Like the smallest goals that you set your for yourself in pandemic are super unachievable. Um and so just putting out a plug for like reaching out for the systems that can be accessed to support, right? Whether that's something like postpartum support international, which has a lot of statewide chapters that can help new moms up with um, with different therapists or early intervention programming, or even like seeking out an ABC coach. It's always that can help. While we're working on the big society. Keep That's calling your senators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we are uh, have about 10 minutes left, so I wanna make sure that we get some uh, time for questions. I see that we have uh, two in chat, uh, one from Rebecca Neal um, up here. Hi, Becky. Uh, talking about, um, can we say a little bit more about um, how the ten inter- how the uh, ten uh, session intervention, um, how long that holds up? As long as we've looked at it so far, is the crazy answer. And I think we are always shocked. And and Dr. Dozier, who um, developed the intervention and who we both uh, work for, has sort of said. Each time we get another year's worth of positive results, it is shocking. (laughs) Um, It feels crazy that you can change so much of the child outcomes from this 10 week, 10 hour program. But I think part of it is, you know, kids getting this sense really early and that sense being able to sort of stick with them throughout their life. I think another part of it is, 
if we can change parent sensitivity when kids are infants, that sensitivity also follows follows the relationship. And so we do, we've seen right now um, positive results in comparing ABC to a control intervention up through when kids are teenagers and with no intervening interven intervening <laughs> intervention from us with nothing in between that, right? No extra support, no additional sessions, just those 10 weeks when the kids were babies, which is mind boggling. Um, and I think part of the reason both of us got so excited and invested in this particular program and in this research is that there's, there's nothing like it that works this fast and this long. Well, and I think it also speaks to like cascading events or effects of early intervention, right? So there's some beautiful, if you just Google cascading effects of intervention, there's some beautiful papers, not by our group, um, but that show that interventions for parents and, and children have these like ripples of effects throughout systems, right? And so here you can think of like, if a parent and child, if nurturance goes easier from the beginning, then when little bumps come along the way, like kids signal their need for nurturance in a way that parents can meet a little bit better. So Stevie referred before to this little cycle that starts and builds and builds and how if we can get in there early, like, yeah, when the kid is 13 and on the corner and someone has like booze, he can run back home and be like, I don't feel safe. I don't know. And mom probably won't yell at him, maybe, right? And might have this warmer response that lets them um, continue the safety within this relationship and the, the security within this relationship in a way that might be harder, um, harder to undo, certainly, as that pattern gets more and more ingrained um, in adolescence. And having empathy in those moments does not mean not having boundaries or not having consequences. It means we're starting from a place of, I see you, I get what's going on for you. You're still a good kid, even if you made a mistake, or even if something happened to you sort of outside of your control, I'm here for you. It doesn't always mean you're not in trouble. <laughs> Sometimes that also happens, but starting from a place of connection. For sure. Um, and another question we had from Barbara Brown was, um, so parents' relationships with their babies, being responsive, letting them know, we are there for them and support them can look different when parents are trying to get them to sleep, right? So yeah. do you ever look at parents' behaviors or children at night when they're trying to get them to sleep and to stay asleep? And how does this figure into the attachment relationship? Great question. And tough sleep question. Is, sleep is a hot mess. <laughs> sleep is really, really tricky. Um, I will say that in meta-analyses around cry it out, like I think that attachment people are very nervous about this idea that um, that a baby should be left alone to cry. What we know is that when cry it out is employed in a family system, we do not see changes to kids' cortisol production, right? So there's something there that tells us that the, the sleep training process is not detrimental to the attachment relationship and to stress neurobiology. Or to the, yeah, to the relationship too. I think that's an important part. And that does feel like pretty counterintuitive that like your behaviors when you're trying to put your baby to sleep can sort of, it's like you're choosing to be not nurturing in that moment. You're choosing to sort of let them self-soothe, which we don't usually do. And so they sort of interpret that as this is a separate thing. This isn't a reflection of my relationship. This is a reflection of bedtime. You know, Stevie mentioned that um, the bank from the Gottmans, right? Of like putting in the deposits to take the withdrawal. And I talk about it a lot in my clinical work. It's like the emotional cup, right? And kids have a cup and we need to fill that cup up so that when we draw from it, when it leaks out, there's still something in there. And so I think of that when I talk about sleep with, with my clients or within the context of, um, of just intervention research, it's always like, the more that we follow the lead, the more that we nurture in the day, the, the more sure that our baby is of their experience and their security through those interactions, the more they can tolerate these times when um, we have to pull back a little bit. And in, in my little one's first year of life, we had a rule of like, don't look at the gremlin after midnight, like do not make eye contact with her if she wakes up in the middle of the night, because you could see how human interaction was so stimulating and exciting and novel and like party time for her. And, and also that she was expecting that, mm -hmm. right? that you'd build this strong relationship, this heavy bank account where she was like, I think when my mom comes close, we're gonna play and snuggle. She was wrong. <laughs> 
I said, no fun after In those dinner. moments, she was wrong. Change your diaper, go back to sleep. I also know, you know, for for parents, the lack of sleep is really hard. So I am a, a strong proponent of like, let's figure sleep out so that the, the family system can function better. It's a balance of, of who's, whose mental health we're focused on in this moment, right? And that feeling of sleep deprivation and being an absolute zombie, you are not in an emotional mental place to be able to be sensitive and responsive. And so if we need to take care of baby's sleep so that mom can feel alive, <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And another question from Zoe Shine. <laughs> um, if you can and instantly correct one misconception about babies or parenting for everyone on earth, what would you choose? Could be very bad, could be personal. There's so many. A single mine. one. Okay, you go you go first. Okay. I thought I didn't and then I did. Um, so I so I think uh the well, I don't know if it's just a pet peeve or if it's a real thing, but I think that for me, um, one of the biggest impacts that I have is helping parents understand that their job is just to be with, right? So when babies are upset, we start feeling like, oh my gosh, well, you don't have to be sad. We can get another ice cream cone or no, you're mad. Well, you have to share, you know, like this. If you think of the baby here, it's like the parent is nudging the baby out of that experience. And, um, and to be able to understand, like, the nudging doesn't work, right? But saying, oh, you are so sad your ice cream dropped. I know. What a bummer. It's like kryptonite, right? Babies are like, oh, gosh, okay, yeah. There was this um, study at the University of Minnesota. I call it the robot study because they had parents sit in a chair and then the kids sit in front of the parents and then they had this crazy robot drive in and like do all this random stuff. And it was meant to be a little bit frightening, a little bit anxiety provoking. And they looked at how kids responded to that robot and how quickly they could go out there and like do this thing that was kind of novel, kind of scary. I don't know how I'm feeling about it. And they, um, coded parent behavior. And what they found is that the kids whose parents were like, yeah, go in there, go get it, come on, go check it out. Versus the parents who were like, oh, you're a little bit anxious. Oh gosh, I know I'm here. So you might think the go get would get there first. No, it took them far longer to approach that scary thing than it did for the kids whose parents could say, oof, tough, okay, let's try it. Can't avoid your feelings, you gotta go through them. Gotta go through, it's the tunnel. Your feeling is a tunnel. <laughs> I love this metaphor, so I'm going to stick it in the last couple minutes. Um, you, I think that this is this is a great way of sort of thinking about it, though, is that is that emotions are tunnels, and if you try to stop your emotion in the middle of it, or reverse it, or try to like bust through the wall of the tunnel, it doesn't work. You have to fully experience that feeling and go through the tunnel and get through the other side of your stress response. And I think. That's no one's instinct, right? We all want to say all of those things of like, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal, or like, you're fine, don't worry about it. I'm like, if someone tells me don't worry about it, about a thing I'm very worried about, I do not find that helpful. And I think most adults have had this experience of having someone, you know, having a big feeling and having someone respond to it like, eh, I wouldn't worry about it, or you're overreacting, or you know, oh, well, do you want to just get ice cream and not think about it? You know, there's so many, or like, here's what you should have done differently, right? Giving advice, trying to fix it. There are like dozens of sitcom episodes based around this idea. And that what people want in moments, especially moments that are like especially emotional, what people want is to feel seen and heard and with. And I think that's, that's a, that's a big take home too. Great. No, that's absolutely. And I just like very briefly, since we only have one more question um, left, we have another one from Rebecca Neal um, about the difference in par and um, uh, parental responses according to gender. And did you have any like male caregivers? Yeah, I think there's a big stereotype about parenting being really different across across men and women, um, across dads and moms. I think the only place that that's really borne out in the literature is that like dads tend to do more like physical play and roughhousing with their babies and moms tend to do more of the like nurturing, soothing stuff. But dads are totally capable of the nurturing and soothing stuff and moms are totally capable of like the fun playtime stuff. Um, I think sometimes there's a little bit more of like a pushback across both genders of like, 
this feels coddling, right? This feels like spoiling babies when we pick them up and soothe them and like tell them, I'm here for you. It sounds a little crunchy granola. It sounds a little wishy-gishy. But what we've seen is that, you know, when people implement it, they find that it works and it works no matter who they are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stevie and Julie. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to join us. Um, I, Special thanks to the audience too. Um, this has been a great, great time. And what's really cool is that is that we have more shows after this. Um, so uh, tune in April seventh. We'll have a new show with new co-hosts and new alumni speakers, um, and it'll be super fun. So um, thanks again, and have a great and and have a great rest of your day.